Welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan. Uh, As always, we have a great show for you. Before I start, though, I want to quickly mention that Jacobin's May Day promotion is still going on. You can get a dollar digital subscription to the magazine or a $10 print subscription. It is a really good deal. It's Jacobin's best promotion of the year. So, you know, if you were thinking about getting a a sub for yourself or for a friend or family, uh, definitely take advantage of that. We're going to link the um, promotion in the description box below, and that'll give you the deal. So for today's show, I am very excited to be talking to Clayton Aldern. He has just written a new book called Homelessness is a Housing Problem, and um, I'm going to be talking to him about basically what the structural and root causes of homelessness are. Uh, There's obviously a lot of myth and a lot of misinformation that circulates around this problem. This has become a huge issue in a number of cities across the U.S., specifically uh, coastal democratic cities. We're going to talk a little bit about why that is, uh, why it seems like it's so hard to solve this problem. Uh, For my own part, I will be making some comments about um, Harvard's new announcement that they will be dedicating $100 million to addressing their past ties to slavery. I'm going to be looking at what that means in light of their massive wealth, and I am going to be arguing that this is basically a PR opportunity for them, and and there are larger problems with how they spend their money. Uh, Before all of that, though, I am very excited to be talking to our friend Ben Burgess. Uh, You know him, of course, from the YouTube show Give Them an Argument. He is also a columnist for Jacobin. I wanted to have Ben on to talk a little bit about the ongoing culture wars, which, of course, is always at the top of everyone's mind. So let's get to Ben. All right. Well, I am now joined by friend of the channel, Ben Burgess. You know him from his show Give Them an Argument. Ben is also a prolific writer and author, so I have lost track of what your most recent book is, Ben. Um, I think it's the Christopher Hitchens. It is. It is. What's the title? Uh, Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. There you go. Uh, On that note, Ben, I wanted to have you on to talk about the culture wars. Uh, Mm -hmm. Now, specifically, I think that both you and I are pretty anti-culture war. Uh, We're class war, not culture war. But I've noticed that on the left, or at least among progressives, there has been kind Mm. of this sentiment bubbling up recently that actually we should be fighting the culture wars, or there are times in which it makes sense for the left to engage in and fight the culture wars. So, you know, I've seen, you know, a couple different tweets to this effect. Um, Mm -hmm. I know that Jamel Bowie has a new article or a recent article in the New York Times where he uh, very explicitly says Democrats should be fighting the culture wars. Um, I think Jonathan Chait over at New York Magazine has written about it, too. um, so so I've got some thoughts on this, but I wanted to open it up to you first as the guest of honor. Uh, when and how should the left fight the culture wars, if, if, if we should at all? Yeah, I basically think we shouldn't. So uh, I think that uh, it's probably worth making a couple of distinctions here. So when people yeah. talk about this, I think whatever kind of like aura of plausibility 
it has when they, they say things like this, oh, you just need to win the culture war, you can't mm-hmm. avoid the culture war, whatever, I think comes from the fact that they're uh, kind of mixing up two different things. Like one is what I'd actually think of as the culture war, which is wars that you're fighting over culture. Right. Uh, so, you know, you're fighting about sensibilities, you know, uh, how do you... You know, how do you feel about uh, pronouns in the bio on Twitter? How do you feel about Joe Rogan? You know, do you do, you know, whatever, like all that stuff, right? You know, do you, uh, you know, do you think that celebrity who said something outrageous last week should apologize or would that be, you know, would that be surrendering to the Twitter mob? Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's culture war. And then uh, the other issue is like social policy battles. Like uh, should you have anti-discrimination laws and stuff like that? And of course, look, I mean, we're going to have laws. They will or won't include like different things that, you know, different social policies. The left has principles, you know, Mm -hmm. we we're obviously going to apply them there. We should apply them there. But what I would urge is you don't have to fight these as proxies for the culture war, right? You know, like, you know, you can have positions on laws without, you know, treating it as this part of this endless battle between media narratives, between sensibilities, you know, where everybody who, you know, everybody who you don't like, if you're, you know, if you're on one side is a white supremacist and everybody you don't like, and if, you know, if you're on another is a cultural Marxist, right? Mm-hmm. You can kind of opt out of that framing. Yeah, I, I want to specifically um, bring up something that Jamel Bowie wrote in his article, because I think it's really interesting. So mm-hmm. he he makes the case that the reason why the left or, you know, Democrats or people who are progressive should be fighting the culture wars is because they are actually a Trojan horse for something else. And in his mm-hmm. piece, he sort of, you know, brings up the critical race theory fights that is that are bubbling up around public schools. He brings up, you know, the anti-LGBTQ laws in Florida that, you know, Disney has waited into. And with respect to the schools, he says, well, what the right is actually trying to do here is they sure they're trying to like foment a panic about critical race theory creeping into children's education, but they're actually trying to undermine public education. And Mm, there have been, mm -hmm. you know, figures on the right, such as this guy, Chris Rufo, who's sort of the main figurehead behind the, you know, critical race theory panic, uh, who who have explicitly said that's what we're trying to do. Like Chris Rufo Mm -hmm. has, you know, gone on record saying, um, saying, you know, I, I like charter schools. And that's kind of like the second prong of my attack in, in, you know, going after public schools and what they're teaching. So I think that there is a kernel of Mm. truth there that, you know, Mm -hmm. oftentimes these culture wars sort of mask uh, more material fights, I guess you could say. But at the same time, I, I guess I'm just not convinced that like in order to defend public education, we have to fight Chris Rufo on his own terms. So I don't know. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I read that Jamel Bowie article and I thought the first two thirds were actually good, right? You know, that like the first like two thirds, what he said, when he's talking about the rights motivations and and how, you know, they're against public education and all that, which of course they are, right? I mean, because A, it's public uh, and and B, it's unionized, right? So so of course they don't don't like any of that. Uh, So I thought that was all correct. But then like the last third where he starts drawing conclusions, I was like, we hold on right like his the conclusions are all like okay therefore lead into culture war and uh and we should be we should be all in and also democrats aren't talking about this enough right like (laughs) 
Really? Yeah. <laughs> it seems yeah, that like was that's... the part. Yeah, exactly. Like that was the part that I don't know, like kind of made me like start or whatever. Because if you ask me, Democrats are only participating in culture exactly, war. Like, yeah. what do you call Gavin Newsom tweeting a picture of him holding up Tony Morrison's beloved or whatever and being like, <laughs> "Take this, red states." Like, what is that? That's not defending public education. No. No, absolutely not. I mean, and and in fact, um, you know, Gavin Newsom, I mean, it's one of my favorite examples because uh, late last year, I actually wrote an article for Jackman about this, the, uh, the, the, the title that I, you know, I mean, whatever, you don't get to pick the title, but the, you know, the proposed title that I put in was Gavin Newsom is a piece of shit, but they, uh, they didn't, uh, <laughs> Bosco rejected know. that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah. so yeah, uh, that was next, but, uh, but like, at the same time, Newsom, like within a week of each other, he did two things, one mm-hmm. of which was to uh, institute this requirement for a uh, ethnic studies uh, class to graduate from high school in California. Uh, and the other uh, was to nix what would have been this like big expansion of financial aid, especially mm-hmm. community college students in California. Yeah. And which is which is amazing, because like, even if you I mean, I've got a lot of I mean, I'm very sympathetic to the kind of critique that people like Adolf Reed and Walter Ben Michaels will make of like sort of making everything about, um, you know, disparities, you know, yeah. like having that be the sort of main framing for thinking about injustice. But putting that aside, right, I mean, like this really is, so you know, like not being able to afford to go to college, the community college thing, like that really is very racially disproportional. So if you actually want to do something about that, that would, you know, be not a bad thing to do. Right. Whereas just like kind of having another class that people are going to sleep through, you know, on their way to graduation is is kind of pointless. But why mm-hmm. is he doing that? He's doing that to to score points with Team Blue and, uh, in, in the culture war. You know, mm-hmm. look how virtuous he is, you know, that he's um, – that he's willing to do this, that as these other places are going after critical race theory, you know, that, uh, that, that Gavin Newsom is actually requiring uh, ethnic studies. I mean, this is, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, my memory extends long enough that I can remember the 2020 Democratic Convention when, you know, Elizabeth Warren was speaking with uh, BLM spelled out in children's blocks. Uh, <laughs> behind her. I, like, I had blanked that out, but thank you for putting that back on my radar. What? Yes, I remember now. <laughs> like, I, I've heard every big mainstream Democrat, you know, use phrases like structural racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've I've heard uh, every big mainstream Democrat, like you know, signal all of the everything cultural that they could, you know, that these these people could possibly, you know, want them to to signal because it's easy, it's painless, yeah. right? I mean, you know, yeah. you can have, um, you know, you can say, um, you know, like. Because it's about cultural sensibilities, but you could have any cultural sensibilities and continue to have the, you know, I mean, continue to have the, you know, muddy commodity money machine keep worrying, you know, along like, like it always has, right? I mean, like that's like, you know, you could have the same companies, you know, do business just as profitably in Saudi Arabia and San Francisco, like it does not matter to them, right? So, mm-hmm. of course, it's not a problem for corporate Democrats do all these things. The idea they're not leaning into that enough seems crazy to me. I mean, you know, he mentions in the piece, the uh, governor's race in Virginia, but as I recall, Terry McAuliffe actually leaned hard into that. You know, I was going to say, yeah, he cut yeah. an ad much like Gavin Newsom uh, talking about how great <laughs> Toni Morrison is, you know, and uh, that was in direct response, of course, to Glenn Youngkin's kind of, you know, fear mongering about critical race theory in schools. And I'm not saying that that one issue made, you know, made or sure. broke the election, obviously. But I, 
Yeah, I agree with you. Like, I don't think that there is much evidence that leaning into this culture war is actually swaying people. And I would argue that it's actually turning off people. So, I, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I think so. I think that, yeah. like, I mean, look, I mean, Terry McAuliffe in that election, I mean, when he's, when he's like, trying so hard to pander to his team mm-hmm. uh, in the culture war, that he said, you know, that he says, oh, actually, parents shouldn't get to decide, you know, what you know, what you, what you learn in school. It's like, okay, in a certain sense, I guess that's right. But it's like, man. Like, why would you do that, right? And I think that, the, again, it's like, okay, if you're just talking about the policy, either the policies could be there or it's not, you know, I mean, it's not like I think that we shouldn't have a position on it. But I mm-hmm. think that, again, you don't have to, something you said earlier, right? I mean, you, you don't have to fight it on your enemy's terms, you know, which yeah. I think you're absolutely doing if you do the thing that Democrats tend to do, uh, which is to to frame everything like the only acceptable explanation after McAuliffe lost that race. Like if you were on like left wing, you know, social media, the only acceptable explanation was racism. That was it. Right. That was, you know, that like, even though Biden had just won Virginia, like by a lot, right, the right, previous yeah. year, right? Virginia yeah. had apparently suddenly become much more racist between 2020 right. and 2021. And uh, I think I think also a not insignificant number of non-white voters flipped to Yunkins. <laughs> so there's that inconvenient fact as well. But yes, go on. <laughs> sure. I mean, like like with Trump, right? I mean, because yeah. they, they, like, again, the only explanation that was ever acceptable for why anybody voted for Trump was racism, mm-hmm. even though, you know, you had the same, uh, the same trends, you know, yeah. between 2016 and 2020. Mm-hmm. And and the problem with that is one, if you speak online social justice instead of English, then you know you will define racist in a way that doesn't require like conscious prejudice. But that's not how most human beings understand that term. Right. So if you accuse everybody in like this broad category of being a racist, it just won't ring true mm-hmm. to, uh, to to most voters, uh, certainly outside of your camp. Uh, and uh, and this is and this is also exactly what the Christopher Rufos of the world like this is I mean this is the reaction they're aiming at, right? I mm-hmm. mean, this is what they want. Like if you if you fight this not as um an issue that's primarily understood in terms of a large percentage of the population like being bad, having bad <laughs> thoughts in their heads and you know, mm-hmm. and, and and not doing the work, you know, not having mm-hmm. the right values. Like if you fight it in those terms, I think you're just gonna lose. Whereas if you fight it as an issue about, you know, like universal appeals about free speech mm-hmm. or about, you know, the the job rights of unionized teachers and mm-hmm. why, by the way, you should have those same rights, you know, like that, that could be a lot more effective. And it could also just be a lot more effective. Just, I don't know. I mean, I remember like last, when that election happened, I, I remember uh, talking to Anna Kasparian about it and she told me like, mm-hmm. why doesn't, um, like, you know, what McAuliffe should have just said was like, why are we talking about schools? Like, like, like what's the, you know, do you, yeah, you should be right. running for school board if you want to talk mm-hmm. about this, right? Like, let's, yeah. let's talk, a, you know, let's talk about, but then the problem is whatever ends that sentence, let's talk about like the McAuliffe's the world can't do, right? Because like, mm-hmm. ob- right, ideally, yeah. be like, let's talk about healthcare and daycare and jobs and wages, but they can't do that because yeah. they don't actually support much of anything on there, which is why, yeah, which is why I think I think Bowie is exactly wrong. I mean, I think I think Cor, you know, in that last third of his article, that you know, corporate Democrats love culture war stuff because oh, yeah. 
because why that's what they talk about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point about um, the the kind of strategy of pivoting to the bread and butter issues. That really only works when you have a bread and butter <laughs> platform <laughs> to like back it up, as you were yeah, saying. Right. But, you know, when the critical when Chris Rufo first started making noise about the critical race theory stuff, um, I you know was paying attention to what various Democrats uh, from sort of center to the more progressive wing were saying. And I noticed that like almost nobody made that pivot, even people who were ostensibly on the progressive side. Like, I kind of feel like the most obvious thing to say when Chris Rufo started, you know, beating the drums about critical race theory would be to say, this is insane, spurious bullshit. Let's talk about funding schools. Let's talk about uh, paying teachers more. Uh, This was, you know, during the pandemic. So there were obviously concerns about like shutdowns and reopenings and all that. But even that aside, it's like, who's gonna, like, what part of the democratic base is going to argue with funding public education. Let's put more money into schools. Let's support teachers. Let's back their unions. Like that seemed to be, that pivot seemed to be the most obvious thing to me. And yet you even have people on the progressive side of the the spectrum. Like I'm thinking here, you know, Jamal Bowie, sorry, Jamal Bowman, very -hmm. similar names and AOC, who, you know, are politicians that I like, who actually leaned into what we're calling the, the, the culture wars, right? Like I remember a long tweet thread by Bowman saying like, well, critical race theory is actually really important for education because it really gives you a sense of, you know, how racism has shaped our laws and how it still continues to affect black people today. Mm -hmm. And that may very well be true, but I don't know that that's the winning message. No, I mean, look, and and I, I should also say, I mean, when you actually look at critical race theory, the real thing, not like the, you know, whatever people imagine is critical race theory when they're trying to stir up contrived nonsense about it, you know, for the public schools, but like the actual thing, I do think that there are some, you know, Adolf Reedy kinds of Marxist criticisms, the real thing that I would tend to agree with. Right. You know, that the, that, um, saying like, uh, that, you know, I, I think that the, again, that sort of focus on disproportionality that, you know, historically conditioned patterns of dis, you know, disproportionality, the distribution of poverty and all the bad things that go with poverty um, is not wrong, but it's, uh, it's very incomplete. And, and I think, and, and focus on it, I, I, I think is unhelpful right now. Mm-hmm. That said, look, I mean, you could actually be assigning, I don't know, Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw in high school classes. And like, as long as like, whatever, I mean, a good teacher is not trying to tell people what to think. They're just assigning readings and people discuss them and they can make up their own mind. And I'm, I'm all for that. Right. I have yeah, no yeah. problem. You know, I have no problem with that. Right. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that it's, I think that's a huge mistake to sort of um, lead into, well, this is the most important thing we should be fighting about mm-hmm. is whether, you know, critical race theory is good or whether uh, the stuff that might get mislabeled, you know, as uh, as critical race theory is is good. I mean, I think what you said earlier is exactly right. You should be talking, you know, about like, look, if you want to talk about schools, let's talk about, you know, more funding for, for schools. And you can say, like, there's a way of doing it where you say the principal thing. You say, look, mm-hmm. I believe in free speech. I believe in job rights for teachers. Obviously, I'm against that, but here's what I really want to talk about. Uh, and then you you do the pivot. Like, I think that I think right now we generally have a problem that yeah. you know you you said you know these are politicians you generally like, and I basically do too because I because I think look policy preferences by and large the people you're mentioning are you know like they're pretty good, right? I mean right. they're they're you know they all want the things that I want you know in terms of those substantive positions. 
But as political communicators, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not crazy about them right yeah, now yeah. because, like, I just think like there's a um, like there's this there these two screen grabs that uh, Bronco Markadich found a little while ago that are one is AOC talking about the 2016 election. She's mm-hmm. just saying like real standard kind of like you know like sort of boilerplate Jacobini stuff about it, right? You know that like. Um, well, a lot of this is actually displaced economic anxiety, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And then the other one, she's talking about the 2020 election. She's like, oh, I was, I was really surprised at how many white people are voting for Trump. And like, I think that shows that we need deep anti-racist canvassing. Okay. I don't, first of all, I don't know what that means. Deep <laughs> anti-racist canvassing. Are we bringing like Robin D'Angelo door to door? Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, but, but it just seems like there's such a better model, right? If you right. think about, uh, if you think about like, Bernie Sanders is never ambiguous about what he thinks about a social policy issue, right? Yeah. If you if you ask him, like, hey, what do you think about abortion? You know, like 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 there there'll be no you know fudging it at all, right? You mm-hmm. know, like yeah. I'm I'm not going to do a bad Bernie impression, but you know, say no, I, that should be you know that should be legal, right? You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but like he does, uh, but then you know, but like he he just he's just so relentless about pivoting to the bread and butter stuff, yeah. and every poll has like that's ever been done about this shows that the guy has like massive crossover appeal for, you know, Republicans and independents, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I just think about Bernie, like uh, when Maureen Dowd was, uh, was interviewing, you know, Bernie like a year ago. And there's that, that picture of him. He's, he's sitting in like a booth at a diner, holding up this handwritten list of the topics. He's going to <laughs> right, discuss. right. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think like she tries to ask him about Ariana Grande and he just pivots and <laughs> it's like, yeah. nope, not on the list. Sorry. Yeah, not on the list. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I, I yeah. Just I wish mean, we, we could have more socialist politicians who are like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I will also say, like, I think one reason why it's so important to pivot away from culture wars is because when you think about the Democratic Party over the last, I don't know, what, like 30, even 40 years, they've been moving to the right on economics, right? Mm-hmm. So the Democrats mm-hmm. now look much more like the Republicans that on economics than they did, obviously, during like the New Deal era. But at the same time, you have these fever pitch culture wars. So, you know, for people who for people who have a left economic platform but are maybe like more ambiguous on the cultural stuff which by the way there are a lot of those people and they're not all like archie bunkers or nazis no. or whatever that actually describes like a fair amount of people in america like where are those people supposed to go when you have a democratic party who that is you know um you know dialed up to here on culture war issues but isn't talking about the economic stuff I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I I did um I I guess like where my head goes when you say that is I think about a conversation uh that that I had a few weeks ago uh with this this random person that was like out at a bar and there's this guy like across the way who uh, who sees me and says were you and Joe Rogan? And like, you know, then he like comes over and you like were. talks talks to me because he saw me on Joe Rogan. Uh-huh. And, Which, uh, by we, the way, is a culture war in and of itself, but maybe we can get to that. Sorry, finish, <laughs> no, finish that's, your story. That's very true, right? Yeah. You know? <laughs> you know, but, but anyway, like, yeah, sorry, go on. You know, but like, he likes Joe Rogan. He liked yeah. me on Rogan. And, you know, he, he told me he was a conservative, although after like half an hour of talking to him, I have no idea what that means to him. Or, right, I, or right. I sort of do, but like, you know, that's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and within like, you know, within like 15 minutes of talking to this guy, you know, he was like, you know, like, like I was sort of like rattling off like, you know, policy ideas and he was like good with like most of them. Right. You know, it's yeah, like, yeah. it's like, 
Medicare for all, sure, yeah, you know, you shouldn't have to pay for health care, you know, pre-K is like, yeah, okay, you know, chef, you know, like somebody look at the kids, whatever. Like he right. said, uh, he said he was uncomfortable with abortion, but I was like pressing him on like what he thought should actually be done. Should people go to jail? So, well, he's not really comfortable with that, right? You know, like <laughs> yeah. it's like, and and the point is not that I think this guy is going to like become a Jacobin subscriber or anything, you know, but like, uh, or or certainly that I convinced him of everything in that half hour conversation. But it was just really striking to me because so much of the way that we talk about politics, so many, so much of the way that even the sort of like some of the people who are currently kind of the leading representatives of the like, even like good social democratic kind of wig of the democratic party talk about politics are precisely designed to like shut this guy out of the conversation, you know, be like, we don't want to talk to you. You're the enemy. Yeah. Um, I think following from that, maybe, maybe I want to wrap up on this last question for you, which is, um, do you think the culture wars have the potential to kind of reshape or realign politics in any way? And what I mean by that is I kind of feel like because of the fever pitch of the culture wars right now, you see some weird alliances happening. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't know like how substantive they are, but for example, like, you know, you'll have um Republicans in Florida being like, we hate corporations now because they <laughs> are, you know, they are like coming out in support of voting rights bills or, you know, they're rejecting our like anti-LGBTQ legislation. Uh and that, but but then you'll also see like liberals and even some progressives championing those same corporations for taking a moral stand. Um, I think we saw this a lot during the you know racial reckoning of 2020, where you know there was a huge amount of corporate outpouring and support mm-hmm. for various racial justice related causes. And I think that you know even pe- a lot of people who theoretically don't like corporations or who theoretically should know better we're like mm-hmm. kind of like championing like well like the corporations you know they're they're they really are like kind of stepping up this time um so i i don't know a- again i think it's too early or at least for me it's too early to say whether politics are really being realigned but like that's the fear right that like if uh you know some sort of self-styled right-wing populist like says just like says says the right things on you know economic policy like just yeah. enough that they then are able to, I don't know, capture the group of people we were talking about earlier who are sort of like left on economics, but a little bit more ambivalent or movable on the cultural stuff. Um, I don't know. Do you, do you think any kind of realignment is happening? Yeah, in a way. I mean, I think yeah. that I think there's like a, a really important way in which it's not and sort of can't, right? Because I think that there are a lot of voters like you're describing. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a reason that there aren't any politicians who are really like acted on those preferences, right? right? That that like and like lots of people are full of shit about lots of ways right across spectrum. But like I, I do think there's something a little bit unique about how full of shit all the right wing populists are. <laughs> like uh, that, uh, there's no you know like there's no right populist version of Bernie Sanders or there's no right populist version of the squad for that matter right that mm-hmm. there's there's no like there's nobody who is like a right winger who like genuinely wants to like you know i don't know like do something terrible with like laws about trans people or something but also but also like really wants to give everybody health care like that right, doesn't exist right. yeah and uh which 
you know, in, in some ways is good because, like, if, if you know that that avoids some awkward questions about how you would relate to those people. But, <laughs> right, like, right. Uh, but but I think there's a reason because I I just don't like it's it's hard enough for the Democratic Party because it is still ultimately you know a party of capital you know that mm-hmm. they yeah. uh, like so it is still very very hard ground you know for uh, for the left you know, fight up but I mean the Republican Party. Like that, that is just like, that's like the, you know, earth has been salted and, you know, like nothing could grow there as far as economic populism. Yeah. And, and I, I guess the big thing is just like, okay, you know, the reason, and look, can you get like liberals to like, like corporations way too much because they're, they're like whipped up by culture war stuff? Yeah, for sure. Right. You know, like, like that, that much I totally believe is a thing that could shift people right that way. And but like, no matter how much sort of superficial anti-corporate rhetoric you might get on the right, like, I, I just think there's a pretty hard limit to how far they can really move on right. economic issues. Because, like, the reason we don't have Medicare for all isn't that like nobody's ever like thought about what a good idea it would be, right? Like, <laughs> it's, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's 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 not just that like politicians in the U.S. happen to be like assholes in ways that like politicians elsewhere aren't. It's that uh, it's that we have an incredibly weak uh, and disorganized working class, yeah. uh, and and a can't So I mean, like I think. Like if Bernie Sanders had won the election and like a bunch of things and like the congressional elect further down ballot and God just right, whatever, it would still be incredibly hard to do mm-hmm. like any of the things that he ran on doing. And right. and to do it, you know, to overcome that resistance, you need some sort of like organized block to, you know, to that could apply pressure. And at least on that end, I mean, you could imagine as weak as this cur- as this is right now, right? And you could like sort of squint and imagine like you know unions, you know, playing yeah. you know playing that role. But there's just like no social force on the right that could that could do the same thing. So I mean, right. I, I I think that they could, you know, I don't want to like. I don't want anybody to hear this and think I'm saying that's like, oh, there's nothing to worry about there. I think there's actually like tons to worry about, about yeah. like, like, like right wingers, like sort of adopted this like populist rhetoric. Cause like they could absolutely, you know, I think they could get a lot of mileage out of it, but I right, just, yeah. I, I, I just don't think they're actually going to do anything, you know, when they, they get into power. That's like none of these people, like, like, no, like none of them, like they have, you know, Josh Howley, uh, you know, whatever, you know, Steve Bannon, whatever, like none of these people, like want the most basic things to like make it like easier to organize a union or to give you health care or like right. any of this stuff because they're Republicans. Yeah. H- have you heard about this thing called the new right? I, I-, I feel like it's mostly, <laughs> I feel like it's mostly a media phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think it's, you know, an actual political movement. Um, certainly not grassroots. Uh, I think if anything, it's an intellectual uh, milieu or even, mm-hmm. even subculture. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but what do you make of them? Because they're, they're kind of, at least from what I understand of the like various mm, media profiles mm-hmm. that have been written, they're kind of a new group that sort of wants to rein in some free market excesses, right? But at the same time, they go very hard on right-wing culture war. Yeah, so, right. So there's like a uh, compact magazine that just yeah. started. It's like very much along these lines. There's like a lot of stuff that like, Peter Thiel sort of floats around and like seeds somebody too that like seems to be like a little bit along these lines, which by the way, in and of itself makes me, you know, wonder how seriously to take it, right? You know, <laughs> right. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, billionaire funded populism. But yeah. uh but 
I don't think that like the people who are like writers maybe who are involved in that are necessarily insincere. I mean, I think I think a, mm-hmm. I think a lot of them probably do mean what they're saying and it like makes sense in their heads. But I would just say like I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting primarily because it shows that like on the right like there is i mean it's like kind of an extreme symptom of something you see a lot on the mainstream right that like you know that you see like even like your marco rubios and like ted cruz right ted cruz will will say i I remember like last year sometimes seeing him on tv saying the phrase the corporate media like he was like a (laughs) guest on like democracy now in 2009 it was like wow okay right you know (laughs) yeah yeah. Yeah, or you know marco rubio frequently says multiracial working class right so (laughs) (laughs) yeah no i mean right so like the rhetorical shift even on the mainstream right has been like kind of remarkable and so yeah it sort of makes sense that you would get these like very earnest very strange, sometimes very unsavory, you know, right-wing intellectuals who are like sort of tried to like do the the sophisticated, you know, version of it, right? I mean, for mm-hmm. for what and like whatever, of course, right? I mean, you're gonna have like any movement's gonna, you know, it'll it'll have its um you know, I mean it'll you know, it'll have its YouTube shows, it'll have its Jackman, it'll have its catalyst, right? You know, like there there are people there are people who are gonna try to be the catalyst for that, you know. Mm-hmm. So that that makes sense. Um and I think the whole development that it's a symptom of is interesting because I think like on the right, it seems like there's this kind of formula that's worked for them for a really long time where they're just like openly like very openly pro corporate on on economics, but like there's like enough Jesus on everything else to like make up for it, you know. And right. and it it sort of seems like that formula is maybe like doesn't have like the kind of rhetorical power that it used to, and now they're like kind of casting around for something else. Mm-hmm. And so like that is like interesting and revealing, and in a weird way, it's encouraging because like if if even if even Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio feel the need to talk this way. Right. Like they're trying to appeal to something. Right. I mean, it's, there's right. like some some kind of opening for the left there, too. But uh, but I just I, I again, I, I just think like, OK, it's, you know, as somebody who spends all my time writing articles for magazines, let me just say it's like a lot easier to write articles for magazines than it is to like actually make things happen in the real yeah, world. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. Well, on that note, then uh, <laughs> again, I will shout out your show. Give them an argument that is on YouTube as well. Um columnist for jacobin i'm sure you have new stuff coming out anything you want to plug before we sign off uh no uh well actually i guess i will say uh one one new thing in the last uh few months that's like very strange is that uh the um uh the daily beast has a new opinion editor who apparently wants um a uh, a greater a greater political diversity on the uh, the op-ed page that they've ever had before, uh, and uh, and so I've been able to to write some stuff for them that's like the least Daily Beastish stuff that's ever been written for the Daily <laughs> Beast. Like there's a there was a you know there are like anti censorship articles. There's an article called Neither Party Cares About the Working Class. So mm-hmm. um, so yeah, uh, check that out too. And uh, yeah, give them an argument is mo- is Monday nights at eight o'clock Eastern on YouTube. Check it out. All right, Ben. Good to see you. Thanks so much. All right. So good to see you. All right. So in just a minute, I will be diving into my segment. Uh, but first, a quick note, of course, from our sponsor, Verso Books, and also one last plug for Jacobin's May Day promotion. 
Join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes every month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month for your first three months, and if you join in April, you'll get these books. Scorched Earth Beyond the Digital Age to a Post-Capitalist World by Jonathan Crary, a polemic on resisting the digital world of late capitalism. Half-Earth Socialism, a plan to save the future from extinction, climate change, and pandemics by Drew Pendergrass and Troy Vettis, a radical manifesto to address climate disaster and guarantee the good life for all. Passages from Antiquity to Feudalism by Perry Anderson, classic work in historical sociology. We Want Everything, a novel by Italian poet and activist Nani Balestrini, plus a bonus book, Russia Without Putin by Tony Wood to understand the historical context of Russia's war against Ukraine. Become a member today at versobooks.com. May Day celebrates the victories of a labor movement that fought for those things that make our lives worth living. The eight-hour workday, universal suffrage, the end to slavery, and the weekend. We didn't have a weekend till workers won it. But it's also a moment to create a renewed sense of solidarity for the struggles to come. Like those who came before us, we believe a better world is possible, but it requires challenging those who profit from misery and exploitation. And to do that, we need our politics packaged in a clear and sharp format to reach millions. Luckily, Jacobin is the largest and most accessible outlet for socialist politics out there, delivered four times a year in a beautiful print magazine. This May Day, consider getting yourself or a loved one a subscription at a discounted price of $1 for year-long digital access or $10 for print. If you support our work, please consider subscribing. We need your help to bring socialist ideas to the masses. Last week, Harvard University released a 134-page report and a slick new website detailing the university's historical ties to slavery. Among other findings, the report revealed that various faculty and staff at Harvard had owned slaves prior to the outlawing of slavery in Massachusetts, and that several major donors to the school had profited from the slave trade into the 19th century. This report was naturally accompanied by much media fanfare, and to atone for its complicity in this historical injustice, the university has now committed to the following. The report encourages the university to engage with descendants, partner with historically black colleges and universities, and create an endowment to help reparation efforts, something the university's president says he's committed to doing. We must continue to acknowledge and celebrate the diversity of our community today, and the ways in which that diversity makes us better, stronger, and wiser. Harvard's president announced $100 million in funding that's going to go to an endowment to, quote, redress past wrongs. The university is still trying to figure out exactly how it's going to use that money. So plenty of people have already pointed out that this current plan for atonement is so vague that it amounts to basically nothing. They have a point. Despite Harvard's announcement of a $100 million special fund dedicated to addressing its past ties to slavery, the school hasn't actually said how the money will be spent other than continuing to study Harvard's legacy of slavery. There's also an even deeper problem here. Even if every cent of that $100 million went to reparations for the direct descendants of the people who were once enslaved by the university, the whole initiative still amounts to a PR spectacle that functions as a distraction from the larger question of Harvard's wealth. Like other private universities, Harvard currently sits on a giant endowment. In fact, Harvard's endowment is the largest of all universities in the U.S. and clocked in at over $53 billion last year. 
For context, that amount is greater than the total GDP of Bolivia. According to U.S. News, the 10 largest university endowments together totaled nearly $210 billion last year. And that's before even taking into account 2021's stock market booms, which are estimated to have increased university endowments by a median of 27%. Because universities are able to claim nonprofit status, these endowments are almost entirely tax-exempt. And since schools generally don't spend down a significant portion of their endowments each year, they effectively function as tax shelters for elite institutions. Now, these schools, of course, claim that they need these giant endowments for things like research and scholarships and financial aid for students. But the truth is, they often shell out far more on managing these endowments than they do on helping students with tuition. For instance, Harvard used around $242 million from its endowment on tuition assistance in 2012. By contrast, in 2014, it paid $362 million in private equity fees and nearly $1 billion in total investment management fees. In other words, universities pour vast sums of money into the financial sector each year, often while simultaneously jacking up tuition, freezing staff salaries or laying off workers, or cutting back on financial aid to students. And for all of their recent navel-gazing around social justice, the richest universities have vehemently opposed any and all efforts to tax these endowments. In 2017, one provision of Trump's corporate tax cut bill actually created a small tax on the investment income of large university endowments. Since then, schools like Harvard, Yale, and the University of Pennsylvania have been fighting tooth and nail to repeal this tax, even though it only affects a very small fraction of their wealth. One opponent of this tax has argued that it constitutes, quote, an unprecedented and damaging attack on the tax-exempt status of universities. But why exactly should we continue to treat these universities as nonprofits? After all, the truth is that these so-called private institutions benefit from an array of public services and government subsidies. As the economist Richard Vetter has pointed out, with very few exceptions, all of them are heavily dependent directly or indirectly on governments for support. Federal student loans allow them to raise fees much higher than they otherwise would be able to charge, as do tuition tax credits and Pell Grants. State and local government exemption of facilities from property and sometimes sales taxes provide further assistance. The federal government hands out research grants with generous, probably overly generous, provision for overhead expenses. Vetter continues, I once estimated all the various government benefits received by so-called private Princeton University were vastly greater, at least 10 times as much per student, than those conferred on a so-called public or state university, the College of New Jersey, located a mere 10 miles away. Is the public-private distinction meaningful in any real sense? In other words, these universities are being subsidized by the government and by everyone else's taxes to hold onto massive sums of wealth, all while tuition costs in the U.S. continue to creep up and student debt continues to skyrocket. No wonder Harvard has been so eager to publicize that it's generously dedicating $100 million to slavery-related soul-searching. But the truth is that no special fund that's set up and controlled by a private university, no matter how earnest or how radical-sounding it is, can replace an endowment tax. The simple reason for this is that taxation brings money under public control, which is to say that taxing these bloated endowments would constitute a much more expansive and democratic model of redistribution than, for instance, one fund that's dedicated to whatever the president of Harvard decides constitutes reparations. 
It's a shame that, to date, the ongoing culture wars have meant that the right has largely taken the reins on this particular issue of taxing university endowments. Last year, for instance, Republican Senator Tom Cotton introduced a bill proposing a 1% tax on endowments held by the wealthiest universities, which include Harvard and other Ivy League schools. Of course, we all know that Cotton is no champion of the working class. He supports corporate tax cuts, opposes tax hikes on capital gains, opposes tax increases on the wealthiest 1%, and has rejected a $15 minimum wage. By his own admission, the intention of his bill was to punish so-called woke universities not to actually seriously fund public services for working people. But the truth is that giant university endowments should be taxed, and progressives shouldn't shy away from this position just because the right is grinding some culture war acts. Paul Prescott, a candidate for state senate in Pennsylvania's 8th district, which is home to the massively wealthy University of Pennsylvania, has argued that the nonprofit status of elite universities should be changed to a 501c7 status so that their endowments can be taxed as a revenue source and used to help fund public education and citywide social services. Paul writes, The 501c7 status is reserved for private clubs, and many of these institutions do indeed operate more like private clubs than charitable nonprofits. Most of the facilities and benefits these universities offer can only be accessed by students and faculty, not the general public. I think private club is exactly the right way to describe a school like Harvard. What else do you call an institution with a 5% acceptance rate that costs up to $84,000 per year to attend? Maybe it's time for lawmakers and the media to take note of the massive wealth this club is hoarding rather than fixating on flashy culture war stunts like whether the school is properly self-flagellating for its complicity in slavery. So we are now joined by Clayton Aldern. He is a journalist and a data scientist and also co-author with Greg Colburn of the new book, Homelessness is a Housing Problem. Clayton, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jen. So uh, you have obviously written a new book about homelessness with Greg Colburn, and I want to just start by putting homelessness into context, uh, because as you guys point out in your book, it's obviously this very contentious issue that, you know, generates a lot of sort of hyper-partisan responses and um, actually seems like it's going to be kind of a major issue in quite a few political fights and elections that we see coming up, uh, specifically in California, but also elsewhere. Um, and, you know, there, there are really a lot of misconceptions, I think, about, you know, who's homeless and, and what the causes are. And of course, we're going to dive into the second part or but that whole question in a bit. But I want to start by just asking, why do you think this has become such a hot button issue? And why does it seem like so little progress has been made in solving homelessness in the US? Mm, yeah, what a question. Um, I mean, I think um, there's a simple incongruity here, yeah. right? We, we live in a time of intense wealth concentration. And so in terms of why is this issue salient, I think a lot of folks, when they look around the world, um, there's there's a pretty obvious question to be asked about how is it that something like GDP as an indicator continues to rise uh, and and the country continues to uh, grow its output and, and concentrate wealth in such an extreme manner, ultimately, uh, and, and, and yet uh, folks are living on the street, right? How, how is it possible that we've come to a point like this? So, so I think, I think, I think there's, a, there's an incongruity argument to be had. And, and then I think there's the simple fact that, um, you know, folks tend to see their own environments, right? We only tend to experience the cities and the towns in which we live. 
And, 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 you know, so your question about what does it mean to experience progress on this front? Why does it seem like the problem is getting worse or getting better? Um, you know, the, the national picture is relatively clear, mm-hmm. um, but each local picture is going to be different, right? And, and I think it's um, complicated by the fact that the pandemic has necessarily exacerbated a lot of the housing shortages and housing challenges that we've observed. And so um, over time, and certainly over the past couple of years, I, I think the issue has become incredibly difficult to get a handle on, right, as a function of like reality. <laughs> right. So um, I guess then let's talk about some of the root causes, because that's really the heart of your book. And I think kind of the most interesting thing that you guys get at, Um, you point out that people often misdiagnose the root causes of homelessness, right? So obviously, you know, from the right, we'll hear that homelessness is the result of like drug addiction or, you know, just plain laziness or, you know, people, you know, who can't get their lives together. Um, And then on the left, we'll, you know, you'll hear something like homelessness is obviously the result of poverty or low, low wages or evictions and high rent. And um, I think what's really interesting about your book is you really kind of pull apart uh, what you call precipitating events and also root causes. And you guys argue that it's really important to to diagnose exactly what these root causes are and that a lot of what people think are root causes are not actually the root causes. So um, maybe talk a little bit about what you see as the root causes. And then following from that, what does it mean to take a structural account of homelessness? Sure. Thanks. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a really important distinction and it undergirds uh, the, the the premise of this book. Um, lots of people lose their housing in the country. Um, it's true. And lots of people retain their housing, right? Not everybody who uh, lives in poverty or, or with a substance use disorder necessarily loses their housing, right? Mm-hmm. So, so there's, there's this fundamental question to be asked about when somebody does, right? When somebody experiences a bout of homelessness, um, why indeed have they lost their housing? Um, it's true that if you interview folks, as as is the case every year when uh, the the when housing and urban development mandates the collection of these types of data, right, the one night homelessness census, the point in time count, it's true that when you interview folks experiencing homelessness and you ask them, well, why did you lose their housing? Uh, they're likely you know to list a, a handful of the reasons you just named. Yeah. Right? Oh, well, I had a divorce, mm-hmm. or uh, you know, I had an, an argument with family or friends, and and. Um, it's, it's true, and it's certainly true in, in these people's experiences, that when those precipitating events occurred, they no longer had housing. Um, but it's, it's just as true that if there were more housing available, if they had another housing option, it wouldn't have resulted in their experiencing homelessness. Right? And so we, we want to ask a, a slightly different question uh, with this text. Not just, why is somebody losing their housing today? We also want to know why is housing not available to them today? And and so you can see there's kind of this orientation toward a, a, a supply consideration at hand. But but more importantly, we're less interested in individual people per se. We, we want to know what differentiates a city like Seattle from a city like Chicago, mm-hmm. right? These are two thriving metropolitan hubs. Uh, and, and yet one of them, Seattle, has four or five, four or five times the rate of per capita homelessness. As Chicago does. Right. So so is it because there are simply more people uh, with substance use disorders living in Seattle? Is it because there are more people with extremely low incomes living in Seattle? 
And the answer is no, and and mm-hmm. we can talk about this later. But right. if, if you seek to explain regional variation, if you seek to ask a question about the difference between cities, it turns out that these commonly held perceptions about what quote unquote causes homelessness do not explain that variation, and and so cannot <laughs> cannot uh, uh, offer a causal. Uh, explanatory driving argument mm-hmm. uh, for why these cities look different in terms of their experiences with homelessness writ large. I think to answer this last question, a structural account would seek to understand those factors, right? It would seek right. to look at cities next to one another and ask about undergirding issues as opposed to asking, uh, you know, why did one person lose their housing and why did another person lose their housing in a different way? Right. Yeah. So so let's then dive into your study because it's really interesting. Um, as you just alluded to, what you guys did is you looked at different factors across different regions in the U.S. and, you know, tried to kind of isolate uh, these supposed causes. Right. So you looked at rates of, you know, substance use. Um, you looked at uh, rates of poverty. Um, talk talk a little bit about your study and what you found, um, what it says about the nature of homelessness in the U.S. today. Yeah, <clears throat> gladly. I mean, Again, the, 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 the goal here is to think about um, what explains regional variation. What mm-hmm. does indeed differentiate a city like Seattle from a, a city like Chicago? And, and so we just run a series of these bivariate analyses, right? We ask, uh, what is the relationship between per capita poverty rates mm-hmm. and per capita homelessness rates? What is the relationship between uh, the, the incidence, or excuse me, the prevalence of uh, severe mental illness and per mm-hmm. capita homelessness, uh, and we we run through a variety of these factors and 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 seek to assess the extent to which any one of them can capture the variance in per capita homelessness across and within cities, right? Across cities, given across space, within cities across time, um, and and it and and the you know the long and short of it is that something like poverty simply doesn't explain this variance. In fact, po- poverty rates are negatively correlated with rates hmm. of homelessness. Um, and, and, and so there are these surprising revelations that uh, really simple analyses can point you toward. Um, what we do find to be the case in terms of expla- explanation uh, is that absolute rents, right, how expensive is your housing market, uh, and, and, and rental vacancy rates, how tight is your housing market, mm-hmm tend to explain variance in, in rates of homelessness from city to city. And, and so there's, there's a core question to be asked then about what, what's so special about the housing market that, and maybe this is, you know, maybe this is uh, uh, an obvious question, one that ought to have arisen before a study like ours, uh, and indeed, of course, it has. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it about housing markets um, and, and, and the intricacies therein that, that act on people's experiences with homelessness. What is it about? How, how do they drive? Can they, can they causally drive structural rates of homelessness in a given city? And if so, how? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so um, expand a little more on that. What did you find about housing markets and, and how they affect different regions and drive rates of homelessness? Yeah, so again, I mean, there are some, there are some relatively straightforward conclusions to be, to be noted right away. The mm-hmm. first of which being, if there are higher rents in a city, it's going to see higher rates of homelessness. Right. Uh, so this is perhaps unsurprising. What's a little, what's a little uh, more surprising is is that when you look at rental vacancy rates, and again, this is effectively the number of 
uh, you know, the percentage of, of units in, in a given city that are rentable at any given point in time. You, you, can, you can look around the world and you can say, well, gosh, it, it seems like there are a lot of uh, vacant properties in my mm-hmm. city. And, and you hear this kind of argument a lot. Actually, there are more vacant properties than there are people experiencing homelessness. It's just mm-hmm. a mismatch. We need to get people into the right units. So, so that type of argument might suggest that uh, the more inefficient your housing market is, the more vacancies you have in that market, the more people uh, you might expect to see experiencing homelessness. And that's, that's just not true. The relationship is in the other direction, hmm. right? When there, are, when there are lower vacancy rates in a city, per capita homelessness spikes. And in, and in fact, there's a, there's a pretty well-characterized uh, limit. It's, it's, it's around 4%. If you, if you have fewer than 4% uh, uh, rentable properties, right? If, if at any given point in time, uh, a given city drops below that figure, they tend to see spikes in rates of homelessness. This is known as the natural vacancy rate. And mm-hmm. our, our, our study kind of identifies this number again. You get below 4%, 3.5%, and, and these rates spike. And so, so then there's this natural question to be asked again, well, why? Why do we see such a reliable relationship between tight housing markets uh, and, and rates of homelessness? And what might that tell us about the differences right. between these cities? Um, and, and ultimately, we, we make an argument about supply and about right. supply elasticity. What is it about a city that allows it to respond to changes in population, for example? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I think, you know, when when you kind of drill down to these root causes, that obviously raises the issue of what are the solutions, right? Like you have spent this time kind of figuring out what it is that drives homelessness. So, you know, how do we solve it? Um, what would actually, what kinds of policies would actually address the structural causes of homelessness? Well, again, I mean, we're talking about housing. And, yeah. and so structural causes, uh, I would argue, are those that seek to center housing as a mm-hmm. solution. You know, that said, right, there, there's, a, there's a big question to be asked in every city around the country. Well, do we opt for something like temporary housing, i.e. Right. emergency shelter, uh, or are we investing in permanent housing? And, and this can include new construction. It can include... Uh, uh, you know, nonprofit management of housing. It can include things like housing first programs and permanent mm-hmm. supportive housing, right? We would all we consider all of those options to be permanent housing. But this tension between what do you do, temporary housing versus permanent housing, it's a question that cities are grappling with all the time. Yeah. I think it's I think it's an important discussion to have, and and I'm not going to offer a real prescription here because in in fact I think what our research would suggest is that that balance between emergency shelter provision. And, and to be clear, building emergency shelter means that people aren't going to be dying on the street, right? right. There, right. There's, there's a public health response to be had here. And, and so, you know, I'm not someone who's going to sit here and say, we don't need any more shelter. We, we have to build, build, build. It, right. This is a function of permanent housing through and through. It's just not true, right? Permanent, permanent housing is the thing that ensures an ultimate, uh, uh, an ultimate sustainable response mm-hmm. uh, to the issue at hand. Um, but but you you need to ensure that folks uh, aren't exposed to the elements, right? right. Especially in a city uh, like Seattle or or in New York, right? It's it's uh, it's awfully cold in the winter in a lot of these right. places, and and so you know this is a long way of saying, I think there ought to be a balanced response, one that uh, is 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 contextually dependent on. Uh, both the the policy environment and and the physical environment of a given space, mm-hmm. um, and it and and it needs to be rooted in housing. Okay, so so that's all 
that's all well and good. Mm-hmm. How do we how do we build? Right. <laughs> and 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 uh, you know that's that's the question of the hour. In yeah. in in some cities, uh, there's a discussion around the elimination of single family zoning. It's a very interesting discussion. I don't think it's the only discussion to be had. And there are some there are some pilots where you see this happening around the country. It'll be interesting to see how it pans out. Mm-hmm. But there are, there are other ways to to open up space, and there are other ways to 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 open up units. Right in in Seattle and King County, for example, the county has been buying hotels over the course of the pandemic and converting these old hotels, uh, you know, to to effectively uh, long term individual bad shelter facilities mm-hmm. um, with the goal of ensuring that. A, folks aren't exposed to the pandemic in congregate living uh, environments, and and B, that they have space to themselves to think and plan for the future. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, this, this approach to both um, personal space and also the decommodification of housing, right? This yes. is ownership of housing on behalf of a county or on behalf of a housing authority, right? Mm-hmm. That kind of thing makes a real difference, both in people's experiences of space and also in terms of the housing market itself, right? The right. price of a unit. Right. And and so, um, you know, what are the solutions? There's a balance between temporary and permanent housing to be had, but there's, mm-hmm. there's a bigger discussion to be had about what it means to build and, and open up units. And, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, my, my headlines there are, we need a lot more money. If you're, if you're, if you're going to build seriously, right. You need a lot more money. <laughs> uh, you need, you need the space to do it. And, Often that implicates zoning, um, but zoning is not the be-all, end-all of what mm-hmm. constitutes opening up space. And you also need to get creative, right? Yeah. And I think the decommodification of housing is is something that helps us get there. Right, right, right. Um, I, I, I do want to talk more about that. But first, I have to ask you about rent control, because that's something that, you know, always comes up, especially in big cities where obviously, you know, rent is astronomical. Um, I, you guys, you guys don't talk that much about it, but you do suggest that it's not quite adequate. adequate. Um, can you talk a little bit more about, you know, where how you see rent control operating and, and why you feel like it's maybe not like the best long term solution? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'd go as far as to say it's not the best long-term solution. I think I would say it's not the only solution mm-hmm. at our disposal, right. Sure. right? It's 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 one policy in a bucket of policies, and it's to be balanced against other forces. Um, so, for example, rent control, uh, you know, does not ensure that somebody who's already sleeping outside uh, suddenly has a bed, right? Um, and and so, in terms of the emergency response, uh, rent control is an ineffective policy. Mm-hmm. In terms of the permanent response, there's a very nuanced discussion to be had about whether or not rent control ensures that people can remain uh, in, in, in units where they want to live. Um, almost certainly, it does that. What does rent control do to the rest of the market? And I think this right. is where the conversation is more complicated. Um, there, there, there's an argument um, that you know, I, I'm not sure I completely agree with, but there's, there's, there's an argument to be had that says something like, Okay, if 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 the economics of the rental market are such that uh, prices do not increase in a manner commensurate with something like inflation uh, or something like cost covering and cost of living adjustments on behalf of landlords, uh, there's a trickle down effect that uh, that suggests you know there 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 it is it is it is uh, unsustainable mm-hmm. from the perspective of the of the business owner, right? And unsustainable from per- the perspective of the landlord. Uh, to continue um, um, offering units in 
a manner that can ensure that they can keep their own unit, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you can point at something like rent con- rent control and say, um, well, this, this sounds really good, but if we're talking about new development, it's really hard to get affordable units to pencil uh, with, with this policy on the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, we need to be you know, thinking about uh, some, some slightly more complicated math uh, for, for the development to work out, right? The new yeah. construction to work out. So, uh, you know, this, this was a long way of saying um, I'm, I'm personally a, a fan of the mm-hmm. policy. I mm-hmm. think rent control, when well applied, um, can can do fabulous things, and I and I also think that um, it is it's one tool in yeah. uh, a much more uh, much more uh, varied policy bucket. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So 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 maybe let's um, talk more about the decommodification of housing um, because I think that's really important. Um, what role do you think the creation of, say, like European style public housing can play in kind of alleviating uh, some of these problems with unaffordable rents and mortgages and and, you know, homelessness that we see here in the U.S.? Yeah. Gosh, what a question. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's 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 a cultural question to be asked yeah. there as well. And in, and in fact, I, I'm not even sure we need to uh, go to the European model per se. Mm-hmm. We, we've seen examples of, of other approaches to public housing in the United States that we that we no longer tend to apply. Right. I'm thinking mm-hmm. of like single single room occupancies, for example, uh, or or. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, there are like a handful of like congregate living, uh, mm-hmm. approaches that we've taken in the past. I, I think, I think the main point to be made is, is that public housing in the United States does not need to look like Cabrini Green. Sure. Pub- yes, pub- exactly. Right. <laughs> I, I think when people hear that phrase, public housing, it means something very specific and, and for, and for good reason, right? There, there have been missteps in the past. And, and, and I think that in, instead, however, um, and, and perhaps the European model that you named is, is one of them, there are just many other approaches uh, to public subsidy of, 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 of living, yeah. <laughs> of, of housing affordability um, that, that could, could, could lend a real hand here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'd mentioned I'd, I'd mentioned the purchasing of hotels, for example. That's 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 one approach, right? You're you're taking units uh, that aren't being used, right? These are vacant units. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't be considered such uh, under the census because they weren't quote unquote housing in the first place. But it's space, it's livable space, uh, and you're taking it out of one market. You are decommodifying it mm-hmm. uh, and ensuring that it is available uh, to people who need it. That that general principle uh, is is one that can be applied uh, to many other situations, mm-hmm. right? And and you know, there's 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 I think an important um, point to be made around vouchers as well. Uh, when when we think about decommodification, I mean, this is a big word. What does it mean? Does that yeah. mean that housing is free? Um, I you know, under some definitions, maybe. Does it mean public ownership? Under some definitions, maybe. Right. I'm using it. In in a, in a in a slightly more general manner, I'm using mm-hmm. decommodification to suggest that the participant in the market is not experiencing that housing asset, that quote unquote housing asset, in the same way that they would were that housing asset subject to the traditional market forces it, mm-hmm. it usually experiences. So so I would I would argue that the expansion of housing choice vouchers uh, is is a step toward decommodification insofar as even though someone is 
participating in a private market when 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 they come to something like housing. Um, their experience of that market is not as dependent uh, on, on, on the forces uh, that it would be were they not holding that voucher. Right. Yeah, you guys have a great line in your book where you say something like housing markets sh- or like housing should not be treated the same as an iPhone or something. I really liked that. <laughs> Yeah, 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 and 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 because it's not right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? It's not. It's not an iPhone. We can't. Yeah. We yeah, as much as we would love to, we can't live in iPhones. Right. Yeah. Uh, and um, housing is also this thing that, in terms of uh, construction, for example, and technology, uh, you know, the core constituent components, it it hasn't really changed that much. Right. Over the past century. I mean, we hear a lot about, well, what about modular housing? What about like building housing from shipping containers? I mean, <laughs> right. they're like, let's let's 3D print a house, you know, like by all means. And, and also <laughs> a lot of the housing stock in the country is is quite old mm-hmm. uh, and it's probably going to stay that way mm-hmm. for yeah. the for, for the near term. Um, and, and so, you know, there are steps to be taken to ensure the affordability of that old housing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, energy efficiency um, uh, investments among them. Uh, but, but ultimately, housing is not like an iPhone, not least because uh, iPhone technology has rapidly improved over the past decade. Right, and, right. and the corresponding economies of scale uh, have been produced accordingly, right? iPhones have gotten well. You know, this is uh, this is a dangerous statement, but I was going to say iPhones have gotten a lot cheaper over time. Mm. Some some of them have, yeah, <laughs> uh, and and certainly a lot of the constituent components have. That is not true of construction right now. Mm-hmm. So I I want to turn to some of the kind of thornier political questions now, um, because I think uh, I think something that's on a lot of people's minds right now is like. What? Why can't blue cities adequately address homelessness, right? And I want to point out that, you know, in your book, you obviously make clear that it's not just a function of these cities being blue. There are plenty of blue cities that don't have homelessness problems or don't have them to the extent that you see in San Francisco, uh, Seattle, Los Angeles, and so on and so forth. Um, but I do want to bring up this political question because it, it does kind of seem like If you have a blue city, the city leadership is theoretically more open to things like the housing first approach. And yet at the same time, you still have these you still have this massive problem. So uh, what what exactly is going on here? I I think that question is is a is a perfect illustration. I mean, I think that the the housing first example is a a perfect example Mm -hmm. uh, to to illustrate the broader point here, which is just because you don't see in investment solving the problem does not mean that investment doesn't work. Right. And 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 I, I think housing first exemplifies this insofar as there are reams of evidence that suggest the housing first model works. And by works I mean ensures that folks have permanent housing mm-hmm. after an experience with housing first, right? Retain that permanent housing. Do not return to homelessness mm-hmm. uh, you know, within six months or twelve months or twenty-four months. We know that housing first works. And so, so, you know, one, one kind of corollary of your question here is, well, why doesn't it work in a lot of cities? <laughs> it works on the books. Why doesn't it work in cities? Mm-hmm. And uh, my answer is twofold. One, it doesn't work if you don't scale it. Right? It, 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 it doesn't work. Uh, you, you cannot solve a hundred person problem by putting 10 people in units. Right. Right. So, so to suggest that something like Housing First doesn't work um, and, and, and also to acknowledge that it is severely underfunded in 
all cities in mm-hmm. the country, uh, you know, is, is to um, necessarily invoke kind of a contradiction here. Yeah. Uh, it, it does work, but it is underfunded. The other point I would make is that housing first and, and, and you know, there are, there are a couple different conceptions thereof, but I'm, I'm using it to connote something like rapid rehousing right now, mm-hmm. wherein, again, you support someone's rent. You as a government help somebody pay rent maybe for six months, maybe for eight months. There's there's some means testing going on. The goal is that a lease is in, uh, you know, a, a participant's name uh, and they take over, uh, they retain that lease at the end of the program, you know, after they've had six or eight months or 10 months, uh, you know, to increase their incomes, for example. Mm-hmm. That that proposal, right, this, this notion of somebody with an extremely low income receiving a means-tested tested rent subsidy, and then taking over the lease at the end of the program, that doesn't work in, in cities with extremely high rents. Right. <laughs> it just doesn't. It, 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 it's a lot easier for rapid rehousing uh, to, to work in a city where, where you know, median rents are $1,000 mm-hmm. uh, or, or $600 as opposed to $2,000 uh, because it's a lot easier to increase one's income you know, from let's call it a uh, hundred dollars a month uh, to a thousand dollars a month, than mm-hmm. it is to increase one's income from a hundred dollars a month to twenty five hundred or three thousand dollars a month. Mm-hmm. So, so housing housing first uh, works in a lab, right? <laughs> it right. works in academia. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't work uh, when we don't effectively implement it. It doesn't right. work when we don't spend enough to ensure that it scales and it and, right. it, and it doesn't work uh, when when we throw people to the dogs when, yeah. when we cut off the subsidy uh, after after a, a short period of time so I think just to wrap up I I, I want to ask you you know uh, trying to cut through kind of the you know political noise uh, where do you see the most promise for putting together a political coalition to fight homelessness today? Wow. Yes. It's you my response is rooted in uh one of your earlier questions which is around how politically charged this discussion <laughs> has become. It's very difficult to imagine what a winning coalition uh on on, on homelessness looks like. But yeah. I I think in in my estimate it 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 looks something something like this. It it depends on uh the the shifting of of perceptions, right? But I don't think that the shifting of perceptions um is 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 such a such a grand thing to ask for and mm-hmm. and in particular i have a lot of conversations with business owners in seattle uh, with with academics with educators uh with 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 policymakers right you know with with my friends and mm-hmm. and 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 with people with whom i disagree and and at the at the core of most of these conversations is a shared understanding that it doesn't need to be this way, right? Yeah. And 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 in fact, uh, in conversations with all the people I just described, and people experiencing homelessness with whom I also have these conversations, there's there's a shared understanding that says, in addition to it not having to be this way, uh, people don't necessarily want to be sleeping outside, right? And and so, what does a winning po- political coalition look like? I think it's one that takes those truths. Uh, at at heart, um, and 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 then kind of works backward to a point of finding uh, the the root cause in question, right? And and the, by extension, the root solution in question. Um, you know, in in practice, what does that mean? 
Well, it means that urbanists, you know, progressives, uh, need to hear the concerns of business owners and developers. It is too expensive to build in the United States. Uh, and also, business owners and, and developers need to uh, hear the concerns of, of progressives uh, that it may, be, it may be true that um, the private market uh, can develop a certain amount of market rate housing, and that also the private market may not be incentivized. It may not be uh, that which provides the incentive structures right. uh, to produce enough affordable housing for everyone else. And, and, and that maybe uh, there's, <laughs> there's, there's room for other modes of development and other modes of ownership. Right. Um, I don't know if, 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 if that's a little pie in the sky, but I, 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 I think um, what, what feels like it generates possibility in my mind is, mm-hmm. is the fact that many of the West Coast cities uh, you described um, and, and with which I'm most familiar really do feel to be reaching a kind of breaking point. And, and uh, this political breaking point, um, I think, can be read with pessimism. But I think it can also be read as, as a moment of opportunity where, where, where much is laid bare. Uh, and, uh, you know, with, with sufficient political will, uh, a solution becomes possible. We have we have numbers on the table. Yeah. We just need to we just need to agree about uh, committing to those numbers. All right. Again, Clayton Aldern is the co-author with Greg Colburn of the new book "Homelessness Is a Housing Problem." We will link that in the description box below. Clayton, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Jen.